Well, good morning and uh, welcome to week number two of our study, Awesome, our, our study about learning how to fear God. We're in Isaiah's prophecy today and it's a spectacular book. It's one of my favorites in all of the uh, Bible. So you'll want to get your copy of scripture, whether it's paper or digital, uh, open uh, to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. We're going to read that in just a few moments. And, and today we're going to be talking about what it means to fear God's holiness. Now, holiness is one of the most commonly used uh, words to describe God in the Bible. Hundreds of times in both the Old and the New Testaments, we see the writers of Scripture talking about the holiness of God. But holiness is one of those words that today most 21st century modern Americans tend to find kind of bland and unattractive. If you ask someone what holiness means, they're going to think of some like white, uh, bright, colorless light, just kind of something, nothing much there. Or, or maybe they think holiness is about being sort of weirdly religious. You know, so if you say, well, so-and-so is so holy, that's not usually a compliment, right? But at root, the word holiness is speaking of perfection. In English, the word comes from the word whole or, or like wholeness. And so when you say that something is holy, uh, you are saying that it's complete, um, it's holistic, it's perfect, it doesn't lack anything. And I want to tell you this morning that, that holiness is something that you yearn for, whether or not you've ever known what to call it. For example, we all want holiness in our relationships. Nobody wants a spouse who is unfaithful. Nobody wants a boyfriend who lies. Nobody wants a friend who uses and exploits them, right? We want holiness in our business dealings. Nobody wants to work with a contractor who shows up late, does inferior work, and then overcharges you. You may not have known what to call that, but what you are yearning for is holiness, I want to show you what that means in Isaiah 6, and then, and then we'll try to unpack what fearing God's holiness uh, means in our everyday life. So let's read this chapter together, beginning in verse 1. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, 
until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And this is the word of the Lord. Now in this series each week, what I want you to see is that the way fundamentally that you learn to fear God is by getting to know God as he truly is. And the way you get to know God as he truly is is when you read and study God's self-revelation in the Bible. You know, it's very easy for many of us to to kind of assume that fearing God must mean you have to have certain feelings. But fearing God is not primarily about feelings. It will include feelings. But fundamentally, fearing God is about knowing God. Not knowing information, but knowing God himself. And the more you know God, the more you fear God. And when you know God, no one has to tell you to fear him. It just happens. You cannot help but fear God if you truly know him. And then that knowledge and that fear will lead to change in your life. And that life change will usually include some feelings. But the most important thing to get is that the way you learn to fear him is by knowing him. And learning to fear God fundamentally also will mean that we must know God in his holiness. We must encounter his holiness. And that's what we're looking at today. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah encounters God's holiness. And and we're going to see this morning, this does four different things. And every one of them is important. If you If you leave one of them out, you end up with a kind of a truncated view of what it means to fear God. And so I want you to kind of think of it this way. When you fear God in his holiness, certain things happen. Here's the first one. When you fear God, his holiness always results in radical life change. Now we see this in verses 1 through 4, which begins in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah the prophet sees the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. God uh, gives Isaiah a vision of who he is in his holiness. There, There are two words I want to draw from these verses that help us to understand holiness. The first one is separation. Uh, What are the seraphs, these angels, telling us when they cry out, holy, holy, holy? Well, the Hebrew word for holy is kadosh, and, and the essence of this word is separation. And notice in verse 1, it tells us, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And we know that the year was about 740 B.C., and I referred to this last week and told you that Uzziah had reigned over Israel for 52 years, and he was a great ruler until right at the very end. Right at the very end of his reign, his life, he became proud, and, and we are told that he, he entered the temple and he tried to do the work of a priest, which God had forbidden anyone but a priest to do, even a king. And there in the temple, God struck him with leprosy, and they had to get him out of the temple, and they put him into the, the palace where he lived alone for a short time, and then he died. And the whole nation was in turmoil. Their king had fallen in great sin, and now he's died. I mean, try to get your mind around uh, the experience of having one ruler for 52 years. Most people, that's the only ruler they've ever known, and now he's fallen, and now he's dead. 
There was this great fear and uncertainty in the land. And it was in the very midst of this, this chaos, that God displays his holiness, that God shows the reality that he is so far above us, so separate from us. And that is what God wants his people to focus on because this is what puts everything else in perspective. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, and we don't know how, but somehow Isaiah was supernaturally transported to God's throne room. And you'll notice in your copy of God's word, the lowercase O-R-D, I saw the Lord. Isaiah isn't using God's personal name, Yahweh, here. He's using uh, Adonai, God's title. He's saying, I saw the ruler, the sovereign. God is majestic. God is awesome. He saw the Lord. And then he said he was seated on a throne. In other words, God is not pacing back and forth. God is not in heaven wringing his hands. Why? Because he's not like us. He's holy. See, whenever God thinks about the future, he thinks, no problem. God is not locked in space and time like we are. He knows the end from the beginning. He's God. He's in charge. He's holy. You ever thought about this? Look at this picture. God rules the universe with his feet up. Why? Because he can. It doesn't stretch him in any way to rule the universe. God could make a million, million, million universes like the one we all live in, and he wouldn't need a nap. He's not like us. He's separate. He's holy. Next, high and exalted. See, even in heaven, even in heaven, God's throne is above all else. It is lifted up high on top of everything because everyone needs to be reminded, even sinless angels, that God is holy, that he is not like us. And then notice it says, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the train of a robe, we know this is a symbol of splendor. Some of you ladies got married, um, you know, one day, and, and you may remember, maybe your dress went to the floor. For some of you, maybe it went even a little farther out behind you, and your bridesmaids had to kind of keep track of it and help you. Why? Well, because it was a day to be honored, and so you had more length to the gown to show honor and splendor. And God... God is so above us, so beyond us, so separate, so big that just the train of his robe, just the end, just the tip fills the temple back and forth, down the aisle, doubling and redoubling, piling higher until this symbol of God's splendor fills the temple. He is holy. God is holy. He's separate from us. And this is so important to see because it is a view of God that so many of us have lost, this high, exalted, separate nature of God. So many of us, we really prefer the comfort of his nearness. And in that, we've lost the transcendent reality of his holiness. Friends, God is not the man upstairs. God is not your big daddy. God is not your co-pilot. Some of you need to go scrape that sticker off your car. God is not an old grandpa with a white beard. God is so far above anything that you can even imagine him to be. He is ineffable glory. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one can see God and live. 
Our God is a consuming fire. That's God's holiness. And if you get that, it always creates fear, healthy fear in your heart, and it changes your life. And if it doesn't change your life, it hasn't changed your life, then you don't get it. Here's a second word to help us understand holiness. It's the word wait. These seraphs hovering above and around God, always at his beck and call, six wings, four of them covering themselves in humility before his, his awesomeness. They are calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Notice that word glory. The Hebrew word glory literally means weight. It's pronounced kabod. And this word glory is about the permanent versus the ephemeral, substantial versus unimportant, the real as opposed to the unreal. Glory is God's weightiness. That means compared to anything else, God alone is permanent, substantial, real. God alone ultimately matters. So here's the reality. Whenever God shows up in holiness, as we see right here, everything shakes. You know, if you drop an object that's heavier than water into water, what does it do? It always shakes the water. It displaces water. Why? Because that object has more glory than water. And when the reality of God's holiness comes into your life, when the reality of God's glory encounters you, It always changes everything. This is what happened to Isaiah. Everything changed. His view of himself, as we're going to see, re-engineered. His view of history revolutionized. And every single time this happens in the Bible, God's presence comes down, shows up. Every time, everything shakes. Why? Because always God is more glorious than anything. You can look it up in Exodus 19 when God comes down on Mount Sinai, the mountain itself, the whole mountain trembles violently. Go to the New Testament at the start of the church in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. God shows up in the upper room there and the whole room shakes violently. Why? Because God's glory is ultimate. Compared to everything else, God has more glory. God has more weight. Compared to God, everything else has no weight. And so when God's reality shows up, everything always shakes. This is what I want you to see this morning. Truly fearing God always results in radical life change. And that means if you say you know God, but your life is not really changed, then you don't know God. See, it's kind of the difference between, say, a God concept and God is reality. It's the difference between believing some things about God and then actually having met him, actually having experienced his glory, his holiness. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, train filling the temple, Isaiah did not say, oh, now I see, there really is a God. He already believed in God. He was a prophet. But until this moment, at some level, God was a concept. But now God becomes reality because he sees him in holiness. He sees him in glory. It's all a matter of glory. That's the difference between concept and reality. You see, God as a concept is always lighter than you. 
When you bring God as a concept into your life, you shape it. It fits into your existing thoughts, into your existing life patterns, into your agenda. It doesn't shake you. It doesn't rearrange you. And see, here's the thing. If you say you believe in God and it hasn't changed your life much, then it's just a concept. It's not reality because a God concept cannot change your beliefs. It just slides in and fits nicely with what you already think. Some of us, you know, we kind of believe in God because, you know, you look around, there must have been a creator. I mean, that's why everything is here. Or or we believe in God because we hope to go to heaven, and that's kind of a nice hope to have. It's a good hope to have. Or maybe we believe in God because we look around and we think, you know, there, there just needs to be a good force in this world. But that belief that we have, our belief in God doesn't change us. It hasn't rearranged our lives. God has adjusted to us. You know, he's nice like that. There are secular people in our culture today who constantly will say, and maybe you've heard them say things like, you know, I just, I can't really believe in the Bible. I mean, this part, that part of the Bible, that's so regressive. We, we, we can't believe those things anymore. In other words, our beliefs, they come from our cultural moment where we live right now. And I want to just say something. You should keep in mind that, that your great-grandchildren will be just as embarrassed about half of your beliefs as you are about what your great-grandparents believed. But right now, to us, our cultural moment seems so real. What we do, our lives, I mean, that's real. That's what has weight. That's what has glory. And then we come to God's word, and I don't know, I can't believe that. I can't, I can't think this. Well, that just means you don't have a real God. You have a God concept. You don't have a God who can actually contradict you, who can actually change your deepest, deep, most deeply held beliefs. Your God just fits into you. You shape the God concept. It doesn't shape you. That just means you have more glory than the God concept. The God concept is lighter. And that means you don't fear God. And that may mean you don't know God. Say, what about religious people? Well, think about this. Plenty of people try to get religious, you know, have kids, and so you start thinking, I got to go to church. I mean, I just need to start praying maybe, read my Bible, do some good things. Why do people do that? Well, you ask them many times, they'll say things, well, they need need help. And what it really comes down to is they need help to reach their life goals. Or maybe they need encouragement and inspiration. Maybe they need some wisdom, and maybe they need some strength. In other words, It's fitting God into their existing agenda. And maybe that's even true for some of us here today. You know, this is the reason, and you can decide if this applies to you or not. This is the reason why so many people can go to church for years, for decades, and hear hundreds and even thousands of sermons, and and they never really change the way they live. Their hearts don't change. Their, Their actions don't change. They're pretty much the same people that they've always been. They don't fear God. God, as a concept, is lighter than you. But God, in reality, is always heavier than you. And when the real God comes into your life, when you get into the presence of the real God, your life always gives way to his glory. Things you've always believed 
get changed by his word because God has more glory than your beliefs. God's glory changes the way you think. And instead of you fitting God into your agenda, God becomes your agenda. He radically changes your priorities. See, our agendas, apart from God, let's just get real honest and real about this. Our agendas typically are, are for us to have a safe, tidy, neat little life. You know, watch our backs, be careful, hedge our bets, look out for number one, see what's best for us, you know, so that we can have our best life now. That's usually how we roll. But God comes and God says, I am the Lord. I am holy. So you follow me. You obey me. You put me above what you think are your individual needs. Why? Why would God say that? Because God is more real than your needs. God says, I have glory. And when the reality of God's holiness comes into your life, everything starts to change. I'm just going to ask you this morning, have you met God as he truly is? Or is God still a concept that you thought up, that you're fitting into your life, that you're not fearing really because you don't know him? See, you don't fear him until you know him, and you don't know him until you meet him in his holiness. And when that happens, radical life change always results. See, if you're here today and you're still in charge of your life, You're still in charge of the way you think. You're still in charge of your life's plan and your life's agenda. If God and his word always agree with you, they never contradict you. If God has not come and completely demolished and re-engineered your agenda, the way you look at life, the way you think, that just means you're out of touch with the reality of God. And that means, quite honestly, that you're out of touch with reality. See, learning to fear God means we learn to fear his holiness. That always radically changes our lives. There's a second thing. We see that when we fear God's holiness, it always breaks down our self-deceptions. These things go together. In verse five, when Isaiah hears and sees and grasps the holiness of God, he cries out, woe is me. I am ruined I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I want to point out when Isaiah encounters God's holiness, he he experiences two things that that just break apart his self-deception. What caused Isaiah to say, I am ruined, woe to me? First thing is this. He experiences radical beauty. you, You may say, Mike, what do you mean by beauty? I want you to think about it this way. Isaiah He's hearing these seraphim call out, holy, holy, holy. And we talked briefly about this last week, how in in the Hebrew language, magnitude is often conveyed through repetition. Mostly uh, in the Bible, we see doubling of something. A couple examples in Genesis 14, you could read this later, but it talks about some people falling into some really deep tar pits. Literally in the Hebrew text, it says they fell into pit pits. So they're like really big pits. They're like really pity pits, you know, and they, they double the language. In 2 Kings 25, verse 15, there's this description of purest gold in English. That's how it's translated. But the Hebrew text actually says this was made of gold gold. Gold is gold, most pure gold. So magnitude is often conveyed by doubling, but nowhere but here. Nowhere but here in the Hebrew Bible is any quality trebled three times. 
Because God isn't just holy, holy. There's a category beyond categories. He's holy, holy, holy. So what is holiness? Well, there's so many things we could say, but as I mentioned earlier, holiness is about God's perfections, about God being above us, about God's godness, about God being infinitely unique. And, and one aspect of all of that perfection about God being infinitely above us is that, is that he is infinitely above us in brilliance and beauty. Now look at what the seraphim are doing. Isaiah says they are constantly calling out, and it's the present progressive text in the Hebrew. They're constantly, repeatedly praising God. In other words, they are fascinated with God's holiness. They love God's holiness. They can't get enough of God's holiness. They perpetually adore his holiness. And the Bible, Bible talks about this in another place when it tells his people to worship God in the beauty of holiness. We worship God because he's beautiful. What does that mean? Well, let me explain it this way. Here, here's kind of a picture you can grapple. Just, just imagine this morning for a few minutes that you actually have a lot of family money. Anybody want to imagine we have a lot of family money? That would be a great thing to do. I want to imagine there's a lot of family money. Who would like to imagine I have a lot of family money? Just raise your hand. So you imagine there's a lot a lot of family money that you have. And you have all this family money and then someone comes along, you meet them. They say, I love you. I want to marry you. And so you get married. And then imagine that later on, your spouse figures out that they're not going to get to that family money. And so they leave. How do you feel? Well, used violated, like you were just a means to an end, like you were just an object, like you weren't loved for who you were? Do you you realize that almost all of us relate to God just like that? How do you think he feels? You say, well, Mike, what do you mean? Well, I've talked to many people, and you probably have too, who will say things like this. You know, I used to believe in God, and I used to go to church. I, I used to read the Bible, in fact, but, but God didn't come through for me. God let this happen in my life, and he shouldn't have. I, I asked God for this, and he didn't give it to me. He, he let me down. In other words, they're saying God has this incredible blessing bank somewhere, and I know it's there, but he never let me get to it. It's God's blessings that I want, and I wasn't going to get them, so I'm out of here. You married God for his money. He was an object. But what we see here in Isaiah 6 is the seraphim are adoring and serving God not on the basis of a cost-benefit analysis. They never did an ROI here, and, and they, never, they never do this because God somehow pays off in terms of power, approval, comfort, control, significance, and security. They serve him just because of who he is, just because of his beauty. For the seraphim, the holiness of God is not useful. It's beautiful. Some of you may have heard of a colonial-era pastor named Jonathan Edwards and lived in New England. He's still considered by many people, even secular, secular scholars, to be the greatest original thinker in American history. He wrote one time that the power of God, 
The power of God is something that you can get selfishly excited about. It can benefit you. I have a powerful God who comes through for me. He said the wisdom of God can benefit you. I have a wise God, and he gives me guidance. And he said you can even get excited about the mercy of God. That's a benefit to you because it gets rid of your guilt. You find forgiveness. But Edwards goes on to say holiness, God's holiness is of no use at all. No benefit. God's holiness is nothing but a threat. And so that means, he says, anyone who worships God's holiness is just loving him for who he is in himself. Now, someone may hear all this and may be kind of getting a picture of the frightening holiness of God as we're looking at this and think, how can you possibly get, Mike, to where you see the beauty of God's holiness? Well, it it really only happens after what we see next because the second thing Isaiah has an experience of is radical humility. And it really happens like this. God's beauty reveals our ugliness. God's perfection reveals our evil. In verse five, Isaiah says, woe to me. Now you need to know Now, this is a curse. Isaiah's cursing himself. Isaiah's saying, I don't deserve to live. He's saying, I am ruined. I'm undone. And he talks about his lips. Why not his ears? Why not his feet? Why not his eyes? Well, here's why. Isaiah is a prophet. What's a prophet? Think about it. Well, a prophet is a public speaker, a communicator. A prophet is someone who's a wordsmith. They're good with words. And think about this. I mean, we are still reading and and absorbing and thinking about this incredible prophecy that Isaiah wrote. It's one of the most magnificent works of literature in all of world history. To a prophet, you see, the lips or what legs are to a dancer, what fingers are to a pianist, what, what arms are to a pitcher or a quarterback. In other words, they are the essence of life for them, their pride and joy. And what this tells us is that the holiness of God does not lead Isaiah just to think about his sins, but also to look immediately at his strengths and to see that those strengths are not strengths at all, You need to listen carefully. This is not just a key principle of biblical faith, what sets off true Christians from moral people. This is actually one of the keys to life. Let me put it this way. The holiness of God doesn't simply lead Isaiah to repent of his sins. The holiness of God leads Isaiah to repent of his righteousness, his best deeds, his strongest points, the things he took the most pride and joy in. And that really is why he feels like he is coming apart. You ever thought about this? Every human being, every one of us has some kind of glue that holds our identity together. We all have something that makes us feel okay. It's the place where our self-image rests. God's holiness blows that all up, lays that foundation of our souls absolutely bare. God's holiness reveals that the thing you think makes you okay, makes you accept it, is actually in itself totally inadequate before God. And when you see that, your glue gets vaporized and you feel like you're coming apart. See, for Isaiah, the integrating glue of his identity was his lips. He was a communicator. I'm okay because I'm good with words. 
And in this moment, he saw the inadequacy of that. You know, go to the New Testament, you'll see the Apostle Paul had a similar experience. In Romans 7, we're told how he became a Christian. He was studying the Ten Commandments, and he got to the place where it says, do not covet. And, and he said, as he saw that commandment, he said, the law came, and I died. Isaiah 6 is like Romans 7. See, what was the glue of Paul's life? Well, he was a good person. He obeyed God. See, what's your glue? Do you know? For some of you, it's your intelligence. Uh, some of you say, that's not mine, and we understand that. Um, for some of you, it's your physical attractiveness. For some of you, it's a professional skill. For some of you, it's your children. Or maybe it's your parents and their approval. See, the thing is, everyone has something that they look to to say, I'm okay. For Paul, it was his moral rectitude. And this, this happens to a lot of religious people. One day he's reading the Ten Commandments. He reads, do not covet. And he suddenly realizes that this meant that he had to love God so much that he would never, ever be discontent in any situation, never, ever be ungrateful in any circumstance. And the holiness of God just flooded him. And he realized the sinfulness of his strength. In Isaiah's case, it's my lips. He was proud. And see, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it's all evil compared to God. And Paul says, when that happened, I died. And Isaiah said, I'm ruined. Do you know how you know? Do you know how you know that you've gotten in the presence of the real God, that you truly fear God? It's when you are saying in your heart, you are saying, I am a sinner. You find yourself thinking, I'm lost. You, you see, and you're willing to admit first to yourself and then to other people that you are more capable of cruelty, more capable of evil, more selfish, more petty, more small-minded, more impatient than you ever thought possible. And you know, you know that you have to be rescued by grace. See, if you find yourself saying, you know, I don't really think that people should feel sinful, that just leads to low self-esteem. You know, people with low self-esteem who actually get into the presence of God invariably realize that their low self-esteem was to a great degree self-absorption. And they realize the only way to get out of low self-esteem is if something gets them out of themselves and gets them into thinking about something bigger than themselves. And that's the glory of God. That's the holiness of God. See, what I'm really trying to show you here as we talk about uh, this self-deception thing is that there is no end run around the holiness of God to get to God's love. To know God's grace to know God's mercy, you must see his holiness, and that means you must fear him. And if you don't, and if you won't, then you will never know him, and you'll never experience his love. You know, some people, that just sounds like, well, Christianity must be psychological suicide, but it's not that at all. You see, to really know God, I must see that he is infinitely greater than me 
and that is going to threaten me, and my heart is going to be revealed. And when that happens, I'm going to see that all these things that I've been trusting in are just pseudo-salvations. They're just little pathetic false gods, things I thought make me look good. But in God's presence, I see how pitiful they actually are. See, when you get to that point, what do you have? Well, the answer is, when you get to that point, you have nothing. But nothing is the only thing that you can offer to God to receive his everything. See, all you need is nothing. Do you realize that? Some of you have been trying to pile it up and work it up and get it all together somehow so you can bring it to God and then maybe, just maybe, even accept you. It's all worthless compared to his glory, but the good news is God doesn't want it. You bring him your nothing. He gives you his everything. And that's when you meet him. That's when you know him. See, it's when we meet God's in his holiness that we see this false foundation of our soul revealed, the self-righteousness, this thing, whatever it is that we've been trusting in to make us acceptable, we see it for what it really is. And God's holiness always breaks us down and strips us bare. We see who we are. But then we get to the good news, number three. God's holiness heals us with his atoning grace. And some of you are saying, well, it's about time to get to the good news. You know, you'll never find God's grace, God's love, something that shakes you to your core, that changes you, lifts you up, and gives you power until you have been brought out of your self-righteousness. This is what happens to Isaiah. He's just coming apart. Woe is me. I am undone. But then this angel, this seraph, comes with a coal from the altar. Think about this. What's the altar? Well, it's the place where sins are atoned for. It's the place where blood is spilled. Verses 6 and 7 say, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. This is the fire of God. Even the angel can't pick it up with his hands. He has to use tongs. But when the fire gets to Isaiah's lips, and again, this is the point of his confession of sin. As that coal hits his lips, we see for the first time that the grace of God becomes more than just a theory to him. See, I think Isaiah had kind of a theoretical view of his sin. It all got real in this moment. He kind of had a theoretical view of grace, but now God's grace becomes real, and it changes him, and it only does it now. I want you to think about it this way. If I paid a debt for you, how excited would you be? Now, if you think about that very long, your answer would be like this. Well, it depends. It depends on the debt, right? So like if I met the mail carrier and I paid the postage due so you could get the package today instead of tomorrow, you would say, thanks, that's kind of nice, right? But what if, I, what if I paid off all of your credit cards? How excited would you be then? Uh, some of you, that's going to be a big thing, bigger than some others. Um, and maybe we need to talk about that in another context, but... Uh, you know, that's a different thing. How about this? If I, if I paid the $50,000 you owe in back taxes, how excited would you be? Or how about this one? Because no one's going to admit that they owe $50,000 in back taxes and get excited, you know, in a way that we can all tell. Um, how about if I paid off your mortgage? 
I knew. I see the amens just kind of flow when you hear that kind of stuff here. Now you're talking. Somebody said preach it over here. And I just have to let you know if it's your first time here, we're not, not that kind of a church. But uh, see, the thing is, you have no idea how excited to be until you know the actual size of your debt. The size of your debt actually determines the magnitude of your joy. And our problem is that we almost always minimize our guilt before God, and then we wonder why we don't have a lot of joy. Maybe you can think about it sort of like this. God is so holy. God is so perfect. That, that means his, his goodness is so good that his goodness cannot tolerate any lack of, of goodness or evil. The prophet Habakkuk says this in Habakkuk 1.13. He says, God, you are of such pure eyes, you cannot even look at evil. Maybe you can compare it to this. It's going to be pretty hot day to day. Somewhere between now and the end of the day, some of you are going to want to drink a nice, tall glass of iced tea. Doesn't that sound good? You know, you're maybe a little thirsty right now. Somebody, let's just say somebody gives you this nice, tall glass of iced tea. It's so cold. It's so refreshing. And as you're drinking it, this person says, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, this is a very special blend of mine. It actually contains 2% human urine. Who here is going to say, you know, 98% pure, that's not a problem? <laughs> no, all of us are spitting it all out immediately, right? Whenever they tell us this. Uh, why? Because that, even that tiny amount of impurity makes the whole thing repugnant, repulsive, right? God is so pure that injustice, impurity, dishonesty of any kind cannot be tolerated. He is pure goodness. He is pure Holiness, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah hadn't really seen how helpless he was before the Father. He hadn't seen the depths of his sin until now. And as a result, God's forgiveness was kind of a sentimental thing. But now, suddenly, now, to know God forgives him, revolutionizes his life, changes everything. Because he's seen the holiness of God. It's kind of a simple test to see where you are. You can write this down. Unless you are wounded by the holiness of God, you'll never be healed by the grace of God. See, if the grace of God is something you kind of shrug about, seems kind of not a big deal. Maybe you haven't seen who you really are. Maybe you haven't experienced his grace. If you look at your life and you think, you know, I believe in all this stuff, but my life hasn't changed much, maybe you don't get God's holiness. And because you don't get God's holiness, you don't fear him. And because you don't fear him, you don't get his grace. See, some of us, some of us struggle with this whole concept of fearing God and this whole idea of holiness because maybe we've, we've thought of God and we've heard of God as this harsh, demanding never pleased God who's always telling us to do more and do it better and keep working and I'm never satisfied. That's how we think of God. And you need to know today that's not real holiness. You see, the real God, the truly holy God always says to us, not try harder. He doesn't say you can do it. He, he says you can't obey. You can't even come close. Even your righteousness, your best deeds are like filthy rags. 
But he doesn't just leave you there. He tells you that he'll give you his everything for your nothing. See, the real holy God never shows you your sin except to heal you with his grace. He never shows you your failures except to bring a coal and to cleanse your lips. And so if you think that God is just punishing you and he just wants you to feel bad by showing you all your failures, that's a God of your imagination. That's not the real God. See, God loves us, but he loves us in his holiness. And until we see that holiness, that God infinitely exalted, a God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, until we see that it's a God like that who loves us like that, we will never be shaken to our core by his love. And see, when we get the new self-image that comes from being stripped of our self-righteousness by having the glory of God come down into our lives, when we see that it's really true that we're completely accepted in him, not on the basis of our performance, then now, only now, is the holiness of God beautiful. Now, you don't have to serve God just to get things. You already have everything. So why do you serve God? You serve God because of his beauty, because of who he is and in himself, because of all that he's done for you, because you want to know him and you want to delight in him. And that actually leads to the very last thing. When we fear God, his holiness transforms us into obedient servants. We see that in verse eight, very next verse. After Isaiah is forgiven, God calls out again and says, whom shall I send? And what is God saying? Well, the very second that Isaiah realizes he doesn't deserve to live the very second that Isaiah sees that he is more wicked and flawed than he ever dared believe, he is in that instant now affirmed and valued by God more than he'd ever dared hope. As soon as he's cleansed, as soon as he's experienced God's holiness and grace, as soon as he's stripped of his self-righteousness, what happens? Well, God comes and says, I have a job for you. I have a job for a prophet. And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. When you meet God's holiness in truth, what will happen is that he will so change you that you will stand up and you will want to serve him. You will want to obey him. You will want to honor him in his beauty, in his holiness. And we don't have time to explore it, but you should read the rest of this chapter again. God actually says, I have a job for a prophet, Isaiah. I need a prophet to go to a group of people who will never, ever listen to him. I need a prophet who will spend the next 30 years of his life preaching to people who will only despise and only ridicule him. Who will go and take a job that means for the rest of your life you're going to be perceived as a professional failure? That your life will constantly be in danger. That you're never going to receive any affirmation, any volunteers. And Isaiah says, still, here am I, send me. I was thinking about that this week, and I'm thinking, man, you know, you guys affirm me all the time. I mean, so many of you, you know, thank me for the ministry that God has given me, um, you know, encourage me when I preach. I mean, except for the Raider fans sometimes. I don't know what's wrong with some of those people. <laughs> kind of critical, you know, and judgmental sometimes. And, uh, but most of you are very, very affirming of me. And I just think to, to be like Isaiah, how could he do that? How could he live that kind of a life for that long? Because he had seen glory and the holiness of God, and it outweighed 
everything. He had been forgiven of all his sins, cleansed and purified by the God of the universe, the holy God who is above all things. And see, when that happens in your life, you will be full of courage. You can do whatever God calls you to do. You're not going to be afraid of other people. I mean, think about it this way. Here is the Holy Father in whose presence even the angels burn and smoke. They have to cover their faces. And yet that God loves me. And if that God loves me, who am I going to be afraid of? You'll be full of courage. It'll also bring you peace. Again, as we started off, we saw that God revealed himself to Isaiah at this time because it was the year that Uzziah died. Everything was turned upside down. Everything was chaos. Everyone was terrified about the future. No one knew what was going to happen. And God revealed himself and said, I want to show you who the real king is. Because of that, Isaiah could have peace. You know, some of you are here living in the, the year that King Uzziah died. Something that you've always counted on has been ripped away from you. You are scared about the future. You, you, you need, I'm telling you today, what you need is you need to fear God. And you need to fear him in his holiness. You need to look into the face of a holy God who says to you, if I'm your king, and if in spite of all my pure holiness, I still receive you by my grace, you can have peace. What you need is God. You don't need advice. You just need repentance before a holy God. You need to fear him. And once you bring him, you're nothing. He gives you his everything. And in the end, nothing else really matters. Fear God's holiness. Fear God's holiness. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father God, uh, some of us are here, and, and I know that uh, maybe we find this idea of holiness repulsive, and we don't really like it, and I hope and pray and ask, Lord, that you would just reveal yourself in clarity to all of us and show us in truth how beautiful your holiness truly is. Lord, show us that unless we see you as holy, the love that we, longing for, we are longing for won't mean anything, unless we we see you as holy, Father. We'll never really know ourselves. And so, Lord, we ask you to change our hearts and draw us to yourself. And Lord, I, I, I pray that if someone is here going through a time where you are exposing our flaws and maybe stripping us of self-deception, but we haven't yet experienced that cold on our lips, I pray, Lord, that they would not turn back in despair, but would realize that you are drawing them right to your throne room, right to your presence, so they can see you and meet you and know you. Lord, teach us to fear you. Teach us to know you. And we ask this now, Father, in the name of your Son, through whom you supremely revealed yourself, Jesus the Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And together, all of God's people say, Amen.